morning. <clears throat> so uh, I want to just tell you the goal I have for today. I give you the goal up front that after this, you know, 45 minutes to two hours that I spent, oh, just kidding, 40 to 45 minutes or so that I, that I speaking here, that at the end of the time that you will experience uh, not not necessarily a greater love for God, although that may come as well, but you, you'll have a greater experience of God's love for you. So with that, uh, let me begin. In our study through the book of Romans, we're at Romans chapter 5, and we'll be looking at verses 5 through 8 this morning. Sort of last week, if you remember, we sort of stopped a little abruptly in verse 5, and so we're going to back up to verse 5 and go through to verse 8. But, but to give us the context, I want to back up to... Romans uh, 5.1, and read just all the way, Romans 5.1 to 5.8, just to give us the context of where where we're at. Therefore, he says, since we have been justified by faith, and so that's referring to what he just spoke about in chapter, the end of chapter 3 all the way through 4, showing that justification comes by faith. And because of that, we have received, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into his grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. These are just some of the benefits that we receive when we're justified by faith. Not only that, this is what we talked about last week, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love to us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Would you pray with me? Lord, I pray for myself, I pray for my brothers and sisters here, those that have been justified by faith, and and even those that haven't, Lord, that we would come to understand in a greater way uh, the truth of your love for us, that we would come to, for those who have been justified, for those that have come to you, that we would come to truly experience your love poured out into our hearts. Amen. Recently... Uh, one of my college-age nieces, I have several of those, uh, decided that she uh, doesn't believe in God anymore. Her reason is that she's experienced some, some suffering in her life, and she has. There have been some difficulties in her life. She doesn't believe in God. She doesn't believe in a God who would allow her or cause her to suffer. And she's not unique. If we were to talk to the thousands of people who've recently experienced suffering due to hurricanes, as we saw those pictures, earthquakes in southern Mexico, and this mass shooting that took place in Las Vegas, I'm sure many are asking, how can a God of love allow me and others to suffer? This is a very common question. And I'm not sure anyone has ever answered this question to the complete satisfaction of those who are going through suffering. But last week, we got a glimpse into at least part of the answer 
that Paul would give to this question. In Romans chapter 3, I mean chapter 5, verses 3 through 5, he says, for those who've been justified by faith, so this is a limited audience, let's get that, suffering has a positive impact. Suffering produces endurance. It makes our faith tough, like tempered steel. We talked about that last week. And endurance produces proven character. Our endurance, when we endure the test of faith, of suffering, it proves our faith is genuine. And proven character, proven faith produces hope. Our endurance of suffering demonstrates that our faith is real, that it's genuine, and it gives us hope. It gives us assurance. Remember, biblical hope is is this assurance. It's not like a wish. It gives us assurance that we are truly God's children and therefore heirs to His promises. So at least in part, the answer to how can a God of love allow us to suffer is that suffering produces positive results in the lives of those who've been justified by faith. And that final result is this thing called hope. Confidence. Security. Assurance that you're a child of God and that you're an heir That God has adopted you as His child and that you're an heir to all that He promises. And knowing this, we have a different emotional response to suffering. Instead of tolerating at best or moaning and complaining and blaming God at worst, we can rejoice in our suffering. So that was last week. Now this week, we'll get a further insight, I believe, into this question. How can a God of love allow us to suffer? Notice at least one assumption behind that question. The assumption is that, is that if God truly loved us, if God truly loved you, He would never allow you to suffer. Therefore, if we're suffering, that means one of two things. Either God doesn't exist, or God doesn't really love us. And the, and, and the context... Excuse me. But this morning, we're going we're gonna to see that this is a false assumption. The assumption that suffering means there's no God or that God doesn't love us. This is a false assumption. We're going to see and hopefully even experience the reality of God's amazing love for us. And the context that Paul writes about about this experience of God's love is a context of suffering. Rejoice in your suffering because the Holy Spirit's pouring out this love. God gives us hope. Assurance through suffering, that was last week. And God strengthens our hope through an experience of His love poured out in our hearts, and that's this week. So let's pick up where we left off last week. See first that hope does not disappoint. Romans 5.5 begins, and hope does not put us to shame. That's the ESV, that's the normal version that we use here. But I think I mentioned last week that that phrase, put to shame, can be translated to, to disappoint, and I think that's easier for us to grab hold of. This is how the NASB translates it, translates it. And hope does not disappoint. The hope we have by, by proving the authenticity of our faith through enduring suffering does not disappoint. What we're hoping for, and hope speaks to future things, what we hope for in the future will come to pass if we're hoping for the right things. And those right things are the promises of God. We're hoping for the fulfillment of God's future promises given to those who are justified by faith. Again, the context, 
speaking to those who are justified by faith, to believers. Specifically, the promises that we will share in His glory, uh, that we will be, be part of His eternal kingdom, that we will be, as we say, that we'll be saved. Saved from God's uh, eternal wrath in hell and saved to God's eternal glory in His kingdom in heaven. This is our inheritance as children of God. That, that the suffering and sorrows we endure in this life will cease. And we will live forever with Christ, receiving in His presence eternal joy, eternal satisfaction, and as the Bible teaches, pleasures forevermore. This is our future. This is what we long for. This is what we hope for. This is what we desire. And Paul says, our hope does not disappoint. That means our hope has been stamped. It's, it's guaranteed by God. You can have this hope. You can know this hope is real. You can know that when your life ends, you will not be disappointed. You won't wake up to something different, something unexpected, something unpromised. And how do you know this? Well, first, because you've endured suffering and your faith has proven to be real. So part of the equation is your faith. And you've endured the suffering. Your faith has been proven real. That was last week. And then going forward in verses 5-8, through Paul tells us a second way. We can know that our hope will not disappoint. That is, we know that that what we're hoping for, let's just say eternal life, is real. Because we experience the love of God now. And that's our first point. God's love is poured into our hearts. Romans 5.5 5, And hope does not put to shame, disappoint, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Now this, uh, the, the overall title of this section, these 11 verses, uh, Romans 5.1-11, is, is I'm titling it The Benefits of Justification. This are for people who've been justified by faith, who've trusted in Christ. And so, uh, this is another benefit of justification. Those who are justified by faith will experience the love of God poured out by His Holy Spirit. And this is, this is uh, a subjective experience. You know what I mean by subjective? It's, it's, it's your personal experience. I don't know the love of God poured out on your heart, and you don't know the love of God poured out into my heart. It's your experience. And so, as God pours His love into your heart, that proves that your hope is genuine. This is the first time in the letter. So, He does this through the Holy Spirit, and this is the first time we're we're five chapters in, and this is the first time that Paul mentions the Holy Spirit. Notice he says, we... Again, those who've been justified are given the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is another uh, major benefit of being justified by faith. In Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, Paul writes, In Him, in Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, you've been justified by faith, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. It's a a future hope to the praise of His glory. When we believe, when we're justified by faith, we're, we're sealed. God puts His royal seal of approval. He stamps, uh, uh, He approves us with the Holy Spirit. We know 
that He's approved of our faith because we've received the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit is the guarantee that we will receive our future inheritance in the kingdom of God. The fact that we have the Holy Spirit is a guarantee that our hope in a future inheritance is real. It's true. So in Ephesians, Paul says that the fact that you have the Holy Spirit means you're guaranteed the inheritance that God has promised you. And in Romans, Paul says that, the one, that one of the ways the Holy Spirit guarantees your inheritance, one of the ways He works in your life to strengthen this, this hope, this confidence in the promises of God, is by pouring God's love into your heart. Verse 5 again, And hope does not put us to shame, disappoint, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Experiencing the love of God gives us assurance of the future hope that God has promised. Now why is that? Why do those two go together? You may have worked it out. I needed to think about it myself. How does the fact that we experience God's love today show that our hope in the future will not disappoint? Well, let me illustrate it with with two different scenarios. Scenario one. Suppose you're alone, uh, driving down the highway in the desert, and nightmare of nightmares, your car stops working. Has that ever happened? Uh, it's, it's bad. It just stops running. You pull over, you get out, you open the hood, and you, for, you remember, ah, I'm not a mechanic, I don't have any idea what's going on here, you can't see anything wrong, there's no wires flailing about. And you know that the nearest gas station is 30 miles away, and your cell phone battery's dead, and you forgot to bring your charger. Your only hope is that someone will stop and help you, right? You wait for several hours trying to flag down cars, but no one stops. The police are on strike. I just got to throw that out there. Finally, you see a vehicle moving slow enough. Uh, that in desperation you jump out in front of it, waving your arms. The car comes to a screeching halt and you run over to the driver's window. The driver is really ticked off. And when, you calm, and when he calms down, you, you tell him your troubles and you ask if he would just send a tow truck. At the, when he gets to the next gas station, send a tow truck back for him. And at first he says, no, I can't do that. I'm in a, I'm in a hurry. I can't stop at a gas station. But after he sees that you're not going to let go of the car before he promises, he agrees. Sort of half-heartedly agrees, promises to do what you've asked, and then he quickly drives away, making a hand gesture out of the window as he leaves. I won't describe that any further. So that's the first scenario. The second scenario is the same for you. But after several hours of trying to flag down a car, someone voluntarily pulls over. And when they get out of the car, you see that, praise the Lord, it's your best friend, John. And after getting a big hug and explaining your situation, John promises to not only go to the next station and send a tow truck back, but to come back with the tow truck and make sure everything goes your way. Make sure everything works out. Now the question is, as you sit there waiting for the tow truck, Which scenario gives you more hope? Okay, go ahead and answer. The second scenario, of course. The first driver could care less about you. 
He may or may not keep his promise. But you're assured, you have confidence, a, a real hope that John will do everything in his power to, to make sure you're okay because you know John loves you. And therefore, you can trust his promise. You can have a, a sure hope in his promise. John will not disappoint you. And the same thing is true for God, except in a much greater way. Because God not only loves you more than any person could ever love you, But God is also all-powerful. Through no fault of his own, John may fail because his car may break down or he may have a heart attack, heaven forbid, or any number of things that are out of John's control, but nothing is out of God's control. The fact that we know he loves us and we know that he's all-powerful means that we know that he will keep his promises. His promises are sure. We can have a sure hope in His promises. We know that our hope in an all-powerful, all-loving God will never disappoint. So let me ask a question. Do you have hope? Do you have assurance in the promises of God? Do you know that when you die, you're going to heaven to be with Him? Have you? Do you experience the love of God poured out into your heart? Now, let me point out that that experience of God's love being poured out into your heart is not the same at all times, and it's not the same for all believers. It's only for those that believe. It's only for those that have been justified by faith. But it's not the same. It's not the same experience for everyone at all times. We know this by personal experience. There are times when you feel God's love more than others. We experience God's love in different degrees at different times. And we know this from Scripture. If all believers had the same experience of God's love, and that experience was constant, then Paul would not have prayed for the Ephesians that they may may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. So this is a a prayer for believers, that we would know the love of Christ. He prayed this because some Ephesian Christians were not fully experiencing the love of God. And some Riverside Christians are not fully experiencing the love of God. And because of that, we have doubts. Because we're not experiencing the love of God, we have doubts about our future hope. Is it real? We have doubts about our faith. Is it genuine? And we have doubts about, about God's promises. So the question then becomes, how do we pursue the fullness of experiencing God's love poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit and and thereby be assured that our hope does not disappoint? Well, the first thing I would emphasize is what Paul says. It's the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that pours God's love into your heart. Experiencing the love of God is the work of God. It's the work of His Spirit. A work that God does in your life. It's not something you, you, we need to accomplish through our own efforts. We can't earn more of God's love. We can't earn more of the experience of God's love. It's not something we psych ourselves up to. It's not something we, we convince ourselves of. And so the question then becomes, How does the Holy Spirit do that? How does He pour the love of God into our hearts? Well, we need to realize that having the love of God poured into our hearts is not a a magical experience. 
It's not like I'm, I'm walking down the road thinking about food or, or football and boom, out of nowhere, uh, the Holy Spirit says, okay, time to pour some love into Cliff's heart. And all of a sudden, through no thought of my own, I get this warm, fuzzy feeling that God loves me. That's not how it works. So how does the Holy Spirit pour God's love into our hearts? And that's our second point. The Holy Spirit pours God's love into our hearts through God's love revealed to our heads. It's like a, I mean, you can picture it, you know, you may not want to, you know, your head, open up your head and this love of God being poured into your head and it just seeps down into your heart. Now, what I mean by that is the Holy Spirit, through the Word of God, reveals objective truth. So, so this experience in your heart is subjective, and that's fine, but He reveals objective truth to our heads, specifically truth about three things. There may be, may be others, but what we're going to see in the verses that follow is these are the three main things. Number one, the Holy Spirit reveals truth about who you are. We'll look at that. Number two, he reveals truth about who God is. And number three, he reveals truth about what God has done for you. And this truth, revealed by the Holy Spirit when believed, moves from your head to our heart. And I say this for three reasons. I say that it's not this magical experience, but because of revealed truth for three reasons. First, because that's human experience. That's human experience. This is how we experience emotions. And experiencing the love of God is experiencing an emotion. Emotions just don't pop into our hearts out of the blue. They're caused by something. And that something is what we believe in our heads. I've announced that uh, uh, my daughter is pregnant. Right? Everybody knew that? Okay, whatever. And as of right now, all the truth about her pregnancy and the health of the baby growing inside her is very positive. Sonograms, all that stuff, it's good news. And so I feel good emotionally. I feel happy, joyful about her pregnancy, about my future grandchild, about being a grandfather. But if after church today, I get a call from my son-in-law and he tells me there's a problem, and, and Beth, my daughter, had to go to the hospital, this new truth, would, would transform my emotions, wouldn't it? Uh, revealed, this truth revealed to my head would change my heart emotions drastically. That's how it works. Our emotions are based on the truth we believe. So when I hear and I believe the truth of who I am and who God is and what God has done for me, this truth causes me to experience the love of God in my heart. That's how the Holy Spirit pours His love in. So first, the reality of human experience is that what we believe in our heads impacts or even controls, I think, the emotions in our hearts. And second, we know the truth we believe in our heads impacts our emotion, the emotions of our heart because, because of biblical teaching. The Bible itself is, is itself the revealed truth of God. And as we read and as we study the Word of God, God pours His love into our heart. If you want to read Psalm 119, which is, for those in our small groups, that's, that's where our passage is this coming up week. For Bible study is the topic. 
I mean, it's just filled with emotions and the Word of God coming back and forth. God's love poured out. In the Bible, there's a link between truth and emotion, between believing and feeling. Just one quick example from, from Romans. Romans fifteen thirteen. Paul writes, May the God of hope fill you, it's like the Holy Spirit pours, the God of hope fill you with joy and peace in believing. Paul is asking or praying that, that, that God, the God of hope, the God whose hope doesn't disappoint, that God will fill you with the emotions of joy and peace. And how will this be accomplished? Again, not by, by these feelings coming to you out of nowhere. He says, in believing. That word in could also be translated by, by believing. God fills us with joy and peace by believing in the truth about Him. By trusting in who He is, what He's done, and and what He's promised to do. So second, the Bible links believing and truth, revealed truth to to our heads, to experiencing emotions in our heart. And the final reason, I believe, that the Holy Spirit pours God's love into our hearts by revealing truth to our heads is because that's what follows in verse verse 5. Follows in verse 6. Because of Paul's connection is what I'm calling it. In, in Romans 5, 5 through 8, he connects what the Holy Spirit uh, subjectively does in our hearts, in verse 5, to the objective truth he communicates to us in verses 6 through 8. Again, verse 5. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. And then Paul says... First word in verse 6, 4. This word in the Greek connects what's gone, what's, what, what he said before to what he's going to say after. It's, it's as if Paul is saying, we know our hope will not disappoint because we know uh, of, we, we've experienced the emotion of love from God, God's love in our hearts. We feel the love of God in our hearts. And how do we feel it? How does the Holy Spirit pour it into our hearts? By revealing truth to our heads. What truth? Truth about who He is. Excuse me, truth about who we are. Truth about who God is. And truth about what God has done for us. That's exactly what we find in verses 6 through 8. Listen. For while we were still weak. Notice Paul begins this truth with truth about us. About our weakness. He sort of summarizes it because if you have been with us in chapter 118 to 320, he, he, he laid it all out. He's sort of reminding us of what he's already said. Pointing out our weakness, our inability to save ourselves. We have no ability to consistently obey God, to obey his law. There's nothing in us that could earn or deserve the love of God. The truth is that left to our own weak selves... We're destined to receive only the wrath of God. But Paul continues, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. At the right time. In Galatians, Paul says, in the fullness of time. When God determined the time was right, while we were still weak, Christ died for the ungodly. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ in five words. Christ the holy, righteous Messiah, the anointed one. 
Christ, the Son who was sent into the world by His Father. Why was He sent? For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. Because of God's love for the world, He he sent His Son to die. Jesus Christ went to the cross. He sacrificed His life. And who did Christ sacrifice His life for? Who did He die for? For the ungodly. Again, Paul gives truth about who we are. That word ungodly means without reverence for God or condemning God. Again, we think back to the the first section of Romans. We, humanity, do the most foolish of things. We exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. We reject God and we replace Him with images and idols with our own selfish desires. We don't worship and honor God as He deserves. We're ungodly. In chapter 10 of, of, uh, I mean, excuse me, in verse 5 of, let me put my head on straight. In verse 10 of chapter 5, Paul says we're enemies of God. And yet Christ died for His enemies. He died for the ungodly. And Paul recognized just how incredible this is. And so he says, for one would scarcely die for a righteous person. When given the choice, even when we know a person is righteous, it's rare. It's a rare person who would give their life for them. Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. Paul says, well, it's possible that for a good person, someone might offer to die in their place. And his point here, Paul's point is that this is not the scenario that Jesus faced at all. He didn't come to die for the righteous, for no one is righteous. He didn't come to die for a good person, for no one is good. We are all weak and ungodly and unrighteous. And then in verse 8, Paul puts like this exclamation point on the truth that he's been communicating, on the gospel. And if this truth doesn't cause you to experience the love of God poured out into your heart by the Holy Spirit, I don't think anything will. Romans 5.8, I would, I would say, uh, if you have a Bible, or even if you don't, underline it, read it, study it, memorize it, meditate on it, let it, uh, let it base your lives on it, live for it. But God shows His love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. You or I would be hard-pressed to offer our lives for the best person we know. But God shows His great, amazing love for who? For us, for the weak, for the ungodly, for the unrighteous. And how does He show that love for us? In that while we were still sinners, not after we cleaned up our act, not after we became righteous, not when we were good enough, because that wasn't possible, that was impossible. While we were sinners, in the midst of our rebellion against God, we were enemies of God, in the midst of our rejection of God, in the midst of our rejection of His ways, while we were disobeying, while we were lusting, while we were fornicating, while we were lying and stealing and murdering and hating and coveting, while we were cursing God, while we were worshiping images and idols, while we were worshiping our own self, Christ did the ridiculous. Christ died for us. This is, this is what we call the scandal of the cross. It's scandalous 
it's wrong in many ways that a holy God would die for sinful people. But this is God's greatest demonstration of His love for you and for me. I've shared this before, but it speaks to me, so I'll share it again. A certain uh, medieval monk, so think back into the days before electricity, announced he would be preaching next Sunday evening on the love of God. As the shadows fell and and the light ceased to come in through the cathedral windows, the congregation gathered. In the darkness of the altar, the monk lit a candle and carried it to the crucifix. First of all, he illuminated the the crown of thorns. Next, the two wounded hands. Then the marks of the spear wound. In the hush that fell, he blew out the candle and left the altar. There was nothing else to say. Jesus died for us. Sinless, Jesus Christ was beaten and spat upon and ridiculed. He was nailed to a cross where he then died in our place. Taking our sins upon himself and giving us his righteousness. This is the historical objective truth from God's word. And seeing and believing this truth is how the Holy Spirit pours the love of God into our hearts. Seeing and believing this truth is how we know our hope will not disappoint It's how we know that everything God has promised will be ours. Paul says it this way in Romans 8.32. He, God, who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? When we hear and believe that God in love sent His Son to die, when we know how much God loves us, and when we know how weak and ungodly, and unrighteous, and sinful we are, when we begin to to understand this kind of love, then we know that our hope is real. We know that God will graciously give us all things, all things that He's promised. Why? Because His love. Because His love for us, the justified, those who've trusted in Him, those who've put their faith in Him. He loves us with a love beyond our comprehension. It's the greatest love there is. John Stott wrote, The degree of love is measured partly by the costliness of the gift to the giver and partly by the worthiness of the or unworthiness of the beneficiary. The more the gift costs the giver and the less the recipient deserves it, the greater the love is seen to be. Measured by these standards, God's love in Christ is absolutely unique. For in sending His Son to die for sinners, He was giving everything, His very self, to those who deserve nothing from Him except judgment. It's my prayer that that even now, as you hear these words, these truths, as God reveals truth to your heart, that the Holy Spirit is pouring God's love into your heart. That you're experiencing the love of God in in a new way. In a way that gives you hope. Hope that does not disappoint. That gives you complete assurance in the promises of God. Knowing that you're a child of God. Knowing that you're heirs to His eternal kingdom. 
and knowing that God is for you today. As you experience the love of God, you know he, He's for you. He's on your side. And that God will be with you at all times. But especially, if that's possible, in the context of suffering. Remember, that's the context of this whole passage. That we rejoice in suffering. That God's love will enfold you and comfort you and give you security in this life. Knowing that God's love expressed through the the cross of Christ has secured for you eternal life in, in His presence. In the presence of the One who loves you. And so as we, uh, as we leave this place today, I, I would just leave you with two, two encouragements. First, I would encourage you to, to seek out uh, more of God's, more of this experience of God's love in your heart. And how do you do that? Seeking out more truth about who God is and what God has done for you, a sinner. So that you might experience on an increasingly grander scale the love of God poured into your heart. That you might worship and praise and honor and glorify Him. It's as we experience His love, as we know what He's done for us, it's, it's, it's as, we, as it comes into our heart that our hands are lifted up and that we worship and honor Him. For what He's done for me and you. For the weak for the unrighteous, for the ungodly, for the sinful. So first, through the truth of God's Word, seek to experience His love on a grander scale, on a daily basis. I mean, do that, uh, do that quiet time that we, we're talking about in our small groups. Every day, go to His Word. Every day, look, what is this teaching me about who God is, about who I am? What is this teaching me about what God has done for me? And second, and this is a, a little bit of a tag-on, we didn't talk about this in this message, and Paul doesn't really mention it here, but I think it's important. When we experience the love of God in our hearts, I think it's important, and I think that motivates us to share the love of God with others. It's like this overflow. As, as the Holy Spirit pours in, I mean, the, it's the picture, it's going into our heads, it's coming into our hearts, and then it's moving out of our mouths and our, and our hands. And so I would encourage you, as the Holy Spirit pours God's love into your heart, share the truth of God's love with others, with others in your life. Share it with words, share it with deeds, share the truth of God's love with those who are suffering and share the truth of God's love who, who aren't suffering, at least, in the, at, at least for now. Share that de, despite who they are, despite who you are, that God sent His Son to die in their place, that they too might experience the love of God for all eternity. Would you pray with me to that end? Father God, thank You. We can't thank You enough. Words do not uh, express the gratitude in our hearts for You coming, for Your love for us, for You sending Your Son to die in our place. But we say thank You. Lord, and I pray for us, I pray for each person here that that today and in days uh, to come that we would experience in a greater way Your love. That the Holy Spirit would pour Your love into our hearts as we seek 
the truth of who you are, who we are, what you've done for us, Lord. Make that a, a daily activity in our lives. Lord, and I pray that, that as you pour that love into our hearts, Lord, that we would, that we would pour it out in the lives of others. That you would use our, our lips, you would use our hands, you would use our feet to minister to those in need, to show your love in, 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 practical, and, in practical ways in the lives of others. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.